Okay, so uh, Deanna and I went and grabbed a cup of coffee, a night's sleep, and and changed our clothing uh, in order to prepare for this next interview, folks. But maybe you just took a five-minute break, and uh, you're coming back for another hour to hour and a half conversation about these important medical issues. So Deanna, here we're getting to the conversation that I was really excited to get to, um, partly because we are seeing across Canada and the U.S. uh, a rise in just terms that, that the medical industry is talking about that we've been talking about and concerned about, but now it's just being promoted like uh myo things like myocarditis have just been as common as the as the cold uh throughout throughout the years so you want to present some information about what that narrative is being is being portrayed as versus the data as it is and i would love to give you an opportunity to do that so everybody's hunker down here we go dana's about to teach us about the results of different studies on myocarditis. Yeah. So just on that note, um, myocarditis, the, the studies on myocarditis are coming out fast and furious because now that there's been enough time and, and pe- enough people have taken um, the COVID-19 vaccines, the mRNA vaccines specifically, we're actually getting a good read on what's actually happening. Now, I'm, the first thing I want to say is, that that is very backwards. Um, so the normal protocol, um, because we have the Hippocratic Oath, which is do not harm, and we've got principles like the precautionary principle, which is always err on the, the side of safety, um, the, the norm is to do extens- extensive safety testing before so that we know exactly what we're looking at in terms of myocarditis, and that we can then tell the people who are getting vaccinated, the risks, the true risks and benefits uh, so that they can make an informed choice. Now, what we did instead was we basically declared safety, right? We studied it for a very little bit of time. So, you know, less than two months, you know, and, uh, and we, the, the popular, the original studies weren't even um, designed to detect rare safety issues, right? So we, we didn't study rare safety issues at all. Um, we pumped it out in two months, which is not enough time to get a proper diagnosis for myocarditis or to know what the long-term implications are. We didn't do any subclinical testing in the, the phase three trials. Uh, and then we declared that it was safe. And that's very odd because that's a new thing. That's, that's declaring safety in the absence of testing, whereas the norm in medicine is to declare safety after extensive testing, Right. Right. So um, so now we're in this very awkward position where we're scrounging around for less quality data because we didn't do this in our phase three trials and we didn't look at this prospectively and carefully at the beginning. So now, almost three years into this pandemic, we're going, okay, let's look at this this thing that's called myocarditis. And all of and many, many studies are now um, being published. And you have to think about this. So we had to have the injury to the hearts. Then we had to have the data analyzed. Then we had to go through the peer-reviewed publication process. And then now, three years later, after everybody's got it, we're discovering 
the true uh, effects of myocarditis. So that is the opposite of informed consent. So <laughs> if we're discovering now the injuries that are to occur uh, due to a negligence in testing, then something has gone very, very wrong. So now, and, and this is what we have been warning people for a very long time about that mm -hmm. when we when we say the word experimental, when when they are truly experimenting on the general population, mm -hmm. like like this has there that's no exaggeration from what you just explained. This is true experimenting, and again, this is partly why we've been warning people to. To be very clear, you know, those people who are going to promote it or those people who are, you know, and again, this is this is businesses, this is uh, medical officers, this is pastors in their churches, this is uh, your boss and his or her opinion about the matter. These things are technically experimental and to rush yeah. to endorse these things is is uh, really taking liability upon your own shoulders. Well, I, I mean, I, I think that that's a good point. And, you know, I, I have a little bit of difficulty with the, worm the word experimental at this stage, um, because experiment means that somebody is asking a question and is looking for answers, right? Um, so the experiment in the minds of the people who are promoting these ended about six months after the phase three trial. That Once that New England Journal of Medicine publication was done, the experiment was complete on that small subset of about 45,000 people. They're not experimenting necessarily on everybody else because they're not really looking to find answers. Do you understand? They actually don't care. They don't want to find answers. They want to stick with their declarations of effects, effectiveness and safety. In fact, it's the opposite, opposite of experimentation and scientific inquiry because they're not inquiring at all. They're declaring and then looking the other way. And I think that that's even worse because, you know, at least in an experiment, somebody's looking. <laughs> in this case, they're looking away, which I think is even more concerning. Yeah. So if we could give it a really quick analogy, 100 rats have just, uh, you know, 99 out of 100 rats have just been injected with something that nobody knows what it's going to do to the rats. I'm saying that's experimental in the fact that they're just going to generally just deal with the outcomes as they sell their products. And you're saying that's not technically experimental because they're just turning around and just trying to sell their products. The, the either well, way. They're, they're, the, because they've turned their, their they've locked the, the rats in a cage and they've walked out of the lab and they're yeah. just busy marketing their product. So they're not experimenting right. on those rats, the rats. Right. They're so, really not yeah, looking. That, that's very true. The end result is that the rats have been experimented on, though. They're, they've received they, something. It, that they've is, received something that's untested. Yeah. Right? That's untested. So, and and potentially harmful because it hasn't been properly scrutinized. But I wouldn't say Absolutely. that they're actively experimenting on us because I don't think they care. Yeah, you're you're painting a darker picture than even what I was willing to paint, which is, is maybe a bit of a role reversal for us, but like, that's, uh, that, that, <laughs> well, that, that's good. For I think, you. No, I think that, I think that, you know, what, and, and the next segment that I'm going to do is, you know, I can't go through all of the studies on myocarditis, but I, I would like to go through this one study. And this study was one that a concerned parent sent me. 
um, to COVID sense. And they basically said, you know, this is the study, you know, my son wants to go and vaccinate all my grandkids. And he's using this study as the justification. He wants to protect his children from myocarditis by administering an mRNA vaccine to his children that we know is a, a known and recognized uh, side effect or of uh, adverse reaction of, of the vaccine. So she's going, I just, I know that this can't be true, but you know, the CDC has produced this study that, that is actually showing that your rates of myocarditis are higher if you get naturally infected than if you get vaccinated. And, you know, they well, put out this study. Let's look at it. Walk us through it. So let me just share my screen. And so when I'm saying they're not experimenting, I'm saying that they actually are not interested in finding out what's true at all. What they're interested in is selling their product. So there's an absence of scientific rigor that would come to the knowledge of truth around rates of myocarditis in the goal of, of um, minimizing this very concerning uh, adverse reaction or adverse effect. So I'm going to, I'm, this is, I'm going to be a little bit punchy in this particular vaccine, this particular presentation. Um, and I, I know that I've mentioned this to you before, but I worked 10 years in the industry. Uh, and so if you have a product that you're promoting, um, you were told that you need to emphasize benefits and minimize safety issues. In fact, there's strategies to minimize safety issues. So it's called, you know, if you get a safety objection, then they basically say, I'm concerned with this, then you figure out a way to minimize it. And then you redirect to the benefits of your treatment. Now, if the treatment is truly beneficial, and the side effects are truly minimal, that's not a harmful thing. But when I'm looking at this particular study, I'm actually seeing that they're following the six easy steps to minimize a safety issue. And so I'm going to walk everybody through how they do that so that when you do see similar studies like this coming out, then you can recognize it and even maybe uh, understand and have confidence in saying, you know, this is not, um, not necessarily true. So this is what somebody would do if they wait, want to maintain vaccine confidence in the face of a very concerning adverse effect, uh, such as myocarditis. So here's the issue, and I'm 100% sure that there's some sort of think tank somewhere that sat down and said, oh my goodness, we're in trouble because there's high rates of post-vaccination myocarditis among young men, and it's eroding our vaccine confidence. And one of the things that you really need to understand about this particular COVID moment is that vaccine confidence is the greatest virtue. So before, what we used to think the greatest virtue was, was safety and efficacy and doing good, the greatest virtue now is to maintain vaccine confidence. And you can see that throughout the literature. And in fact, most of the studies, no matter you know, what outcomes they present, there's often this final recommendation is vaccination is the best way to protect you and your family. You know, all roads lead to vaccination. And I'm, sp I'm speaking specifically about uh, the COVID-19 mRNA uh, vaccines. So Deanna, just to be very clear, um, this is your presentation about their statements. Yes. So this is yeah. So this is a I'm study. I'm imagining this is this is me walking through what I'm imagining that they're going through 
in order to prepare this study, which is going to reinstate vaccine confidence. But in particular, the data on post-vaccination myocarditis is available and is specific. Like, like as you're imagining their logic, that's one exercise, but you're basing it off of the, the, the data and statements that they themselves are making. I just want to get that really clear for our listeners. Yeah. So right now, the literature is booming with more and more studies that are showing that there is a real adverse effect called post-vaccination myocarditis. Uh, we can't say that the vaccine causes myocarditis because we don't have a phase three study because they didn't do the proper study for that. Um, right. But there's a very strong association. And I think that generally it's becoming accepted that this is an adverse outcome of, of mRNA vaccines. So I think that that's true. And so the problem with that from a global marketing point of view is that that is going to erode vaccine confidence. People might stop having confidence in the vaccine. I right. think that that would be appropriate. <laughs> There's a truly concerning side effect. But if yep. your, your number one goal is to maintain vaccine confidence in order to sell as much vaccine as possible, right? Yeah. Or, or to, you know, or perhaps you're part of a global movement that really wants to learn how to have a core, you know, coordinated response to a pandemic. And, you know, once the captain says vaccines are the way, then everybody in the troop has to say vaccines are the way, you know, whatever, whatever it is that's happening, you know, whether it's, you know, a global planning being effectively coordinated or global messaging coming down effectively, whatever it is, the message means, you know, the, the goal is to maintain confidence. And of course, if you have myocarditis, that is definitely something that could undermine confidence. So then the solution is to apply, and I'm being cheeky here, these six easy steps to minimize the safety issue. So that's actually a true, it's a technical term that's used, minimize the safety issue and increase vaccine confidence. So this I'm is- glad you're being a bit cheeky because this is really what they are doing. I, I don't want to pause you too much, but people need to hear that because it's what's been, it's called double speak. It's also, it's also just an age old ability of making a lie look good. And that is where you give it a, give it a phrase that, that evokes emotion. So when you say vaccine confidence, Hey, we're, we're concerned about vaccine confidence. Like you're, you are actually changing, as you just said, the virtue mm -hmm. and some people can still feel virtuous about now wanting to increase vaccine confidence, but you've fundamentally changed yeah. the premise. And, and that's really important for people to hear. Okay. Continue. Thanks. The focus, the focus always needs to be on safety and has right. always been on safety and not only safety of the collective in the sense of a population, but safety of the individual. So for instance, you know, even that there's a beneficial treatment that is good for 98% of the population, you would never give it to 100% of the population if it would mean that two people would die, right? Right. You would basically say, or if it were, if you said that it had a 2% risk of death, or, you know, then you would basically say, um, you know, this has a 2% risk of death, take it at your own risk right? You'd have to be very clear about the risk involved, right? But when they're promoting yep. these vaccines, they're saying full on safe and effective, right? 
Yeah. And they're, they're saying that very boldly in order to get the maximum vaccine confidence. You know, another way of saying is, is to minimize hesitancy or to eliminate hesitancy. Yes. Which is very interesting because it doesn't actually mean that there's, there's a place where you could say, no, I'm making a call that this is not good. The clinical benefit ratio does not work for me. If you're actually making a statement about the benefit for yourself, then you're called hesitant, which is really interesting too, right? Not like it, it because it connotes some sort of lack of confidence. Um, whereas that's, that's what actually I'm actually... Not the, that's not really the case at all. You can actually be very confident in saying that this vaccine is not for me or my loved one. Oh yeah. Vaccine hesitancy is I'm hesitating because I'm doing my research. And I've talked about this before when, with James Kitchen, you know, one of the reasons why I'm not a cocaine addict is because I'm hesitant that I might become a cocaine addict. Like it, maybe, maybe I might want to do cocaine just to see what it's like. And cause I want to escape for a few minutes of my life, but there's a legitimate hesitancy because I can look at the drug addict and go, I don't want to be that. That's concerning to me. Hesitancy mm -hmm. has never been, it, it was called discernment. It's called prudence. It's called wisdom. Uh, th mm -hmm. This has never been a negative virtue to be hesitant of I'm, I'm not going to go buy that car right now. I'm hesitant mm -hmm. because I'm waiting until I feel if I need, I can I need that car or can afford that car. Hesitancy mm -hmm. has never been seen it, only in an authoritarian society is hesitancy in the government, uh, a, a, a virtue like th th that's, that's actually what's being told to us here. Sleight of hand is that if, if they don't have confidence in you, then there's something wrong with them. It, it's, 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 it's a, it's a very bad turn of affairs for medical informed consent. And I'm trying to, while you're talking, I'm also just trying to find that, that reference point I brought up and I have quoted on the podcast before that is still on the college of physicians and surgeons of Ontario website talking about the hesitancy issue. So you keep walking people through that and I'll, uh, I'll bring that up when it's appropriate. Sure. So um, now this is, uh, this is a study that was given to me, as I mentioned previously, by a, a mother who was concerned about um, her grandchildren becoming uh, receiving the mRNA vaccine. She was aware of the issues of myocarditis and therefore was concerned, rightly so, not necessarily hesitant, but truly appropriately concerned uh, for the safety of her children. Her grandchildren. And so um, this particular study is something that came out shortly after, um, you know, April 1st, 2022, just as all of the data on uh, myocarditis was starting to be published. Uh, and this was presented, or this is published in the MMWR, which is a non-peer-reviewed CDC publication. So it's kind of you know, it's where they can publish analyses that they've conducted themselves. And it, it isn't um, exposed to outside scrutiny. They don't have to have anybody from the outside take a look at this to see, you know, if, um, if there's any issues. You don't get a lot of data in the sense that you don't get extended uh, analysis that you, you could usually do to, to look at it carefully. Um, but generally speaking, this is a very uh, influential uh, means of communicating public health information. So if the CDC does publish something like this, it does have an impact. Uh, it used to be that the CDC was highly credible and therefore many people would take them at their word if they said something. Um, however, I'm not 100% sure uh, the degree to which the CDC has credibility moving uh, after this whole COVID-19 moment. 
Um, but let's take a look at this particular publication and then we'll let your audience, your listeners, viewers, decide for themselves whether the CDC is credible uh, and what they're publishing is actually had. And I think this is really important to be thinking about. And you always have to think, whose interests do they have in mind? Do they have the patient's interest in mind in the sense of wanting to make sure that the product that they are uh, recommending is beneficial and safe? Or do they have some other interest in mind, potentially a financial interest of selling product? Because um, I'm not sure if your viewers, your readership is aware that um, the NIH uh, based on the Bayh-Dole Act in the 1980s, is actually able to patent, have patents on their discoveries. And so uh, they actually have a patent on the spike protein that's used in these vaccines. So every time a vaccine is sold, they actually get a cut of the profits. So the very people, you know, the NIH, the NIAID, and the, the public health harm is a CDC, this whole this whole group is profiting monetarily from the sale of these vaccines, right? Um, you know, there could be, so there could be financial conflicts of interest at, at play here. Um, there could be um, political conflicts of interest. You know, there's evidence that's emerging now that the politicians in the States have been heavily influencing the CDC and requiring that they, uh, you know, recommend certain things. So, you know, are, how we maintain the independence. Um, so I guess we, you know, when looking at this type of data, you really have to say, do they have the patient's interest in mind or are there conflicting interests at play? And usually if you start to see uh, a study that changes things so that, you know, the safety is obfuscated or the benefits are exaggerated, then you have to start to think, why are they doing that? And what other interests are at play? And so I think it would be interesting as we go through this to, to keep that in mind. And then to ask yourself, you know, is the CDC at this stage of the game a credible organization and someone to be trusted? Um, or should we be closely scrutinizing what they're producing and, and asking ourselves if there's any other interests at play? All right, so here is the little infographic that goes with the article. And at the top, it says the risk of compli heart complications is higher after COVID-19 infection than after mRNA vaccination among males and females of all ages. So that's a little bit surprising because we know that 70% of the people uh, who get uh, COVID-19 are asymptomatic and asymptomatic have zero risk of myocarditis and infection because the, the virus technically doesn't ever get out of their upper respiratory tract and so has no ability of even getting to the heart. So right away, and you know, this mom was saying, this doesn't sound right to me. Um, and so I think, you know, right away, her spidey senses started to tingle. And so she asked us to take a look at this. Um, so then let's just look at the infographic again. It says teen boys aged 12 to 17 years had two to six times the risk of heart complications after infection compared to after vaccination. Uh, young men had seven to eight times the risk of complication after infection compared to after vaccination. And of course, uh, the conclusion of the study, the recommendation is that COVID-19 vaccination is the best way to protect against COVID-19 and rare heart complications.
So you can actually now take the vaccines in order to prevent rare heart complications. So you've doubled, you've doubled the uses for the vaccine now. So, so now you've, 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 it's not just a vaccine for the flu, the, the way that we would think of a flu vaccine or for COVID-19. It's now taken on its own a rare heart complication medication as well. According to this infographic. Absolutely. Yes. I, but, but I'm just saying like you've just doubled your – now we're nowhere sure. near COVID-19. You know, COVID-19 is 15 years in the past and uh, now I just really want my to avoid my kids having rare heart complications so the product can keep being sold to children. That's um, quite yeah. remarkable. For, yeah. So, it, you know, at first blush, if you were to be trusting the CDC and not really thinking very carefully, you'd say, oh, my goodness, look at this. Now the COVID-19 vaccine protects against rare heart complications. This is amazing, as you just mentioned. Um, but let's walk through the study and then, you know, you can determine for yourself whether there's sufficient evidence to support that recommendation, which is what we do is we say, was there sufficient evidence to be able to support that conclusion? And if there isn't, then you throw the conclusion or the recommendation out. So I just want everybody, first... just sorry, Deanna, just that first slide there, just, there's a pretty big difference between two and a six, like two to six times that like that immediately in my eye mind and go that that can't be very precise of a study if you're giving me two times two six times but uh mm -hmm. anyways go go ahead I, I sort of interrupt there yeah so the first step in making uh a case if you're going to and I'm going to I'm going to talk about the fact that they are going to minimize the issue of myocarditis related to vaccination so the first step in preparing a, a study that is going to do this job for you is to choose a very large healthcare system. So they use the PCORNET healthcare system because it's it's seen, people perceive that if it's part of a big healthcare system, then that it will be credible because there's a lot of people, a lot of numbers, right? The more people, the more reliable the the information. Um, they're going to choose to look at data from January 1st, 2021 to January 31st, 2022. And they're going to look at, uh, then they're going to do a, a fairly sophisticated analysis where they're going to look at different age cohorts. You can see that there are four there and they're going to look at gender differences. So by using a large healthcare system, you get a large number of cases. Uh, it would seem to be more reliable. And then if you do some sub-analysis, then it seems to be like you're actually drilling down for something interesting. But I'm just going to show you how, um, it, even though you've got a very large database, how you can still manipulate the numbers in order to be able to make something seem like it's the case where it's not really the case. So... The first step in minimizing a pesky little safety issue is to make a convincing comparison. So now, you know, if I were to go about saying, oh, my, you know, so I could say myocarditis isn't serious, you know, it's mild and it's short lived, which they are saying. Um, and, you know, people may or may not gain confidence from that. Um, but what if I were able to convince you that the, the, the risk of infection, the myocarditis from infection is higher than vaccination. That would eliminate your vaccine hesitancy completely, right? 
Right. So the first step is to make a convincing comparison. So what they're really afraid of is, is people are becoming more afraid of the vaccine than they are of the infection. So the answer is to make the infection seem bigger than the vaccine, right? Right. So this is the comparison that they're going to make, and they're going to do it in the context of this very large uh, database in the States, because that's going to seem very credible. So and, the and first... just, you've said the word seem, Deanna, just, just to be clear on the onset, does that look like a credible, like, like a, a big people group, male versus female cohorts of ages? Like, of course, it's a short study again. It's very short. But mm. other than that, I'm looking at that going, okay, well, the starting point well, seems, might be okay. Seems pretty, yeah, it seems pretty convincing. And that if you were going to do a good study, you'd want a large database as well, right? Right. Um, but uh, it, you know, if you're going to be, you know, skewing data, you, you want it to have the, you want it to seem credible. Right. So, um, so then being part of the 40, you know, PCORnet using PCORnet is actually helpful. Now PCORnet right. in and of itself isn't bad. In fact, it you probably could be the basis for great analyses. Right. Um, but in this case, uh, it was, selected and it gives the air of credibility, but it doesn't necessarily mean that this analysis is credible. Okay. So they're going to look at the seven day relative risk of infection versus vaccination. Um, the risk of myocarditis, excuse me, for, uh, for infection versus vaccination. So, you know, seven days after you're either infected or vaccinated, what is your relative risk of myocarditis? So the first, the second step, so you, the first step was to do a convincing comparison. The second step is to selectively lower your denominator in your infection group. Because if you're looking at the rate of myocarditis, again, it's the, it's the number of events of myocarditis over the total number of people infected, right? And if you're looking at rates of vaccination, rates of myocarditis and vaccination, it's the total number of, of events of myocarditis over the total number of vaccinations, right? So if you shrink, right, the denominator, the number of people who are infected, then you will actually exaggerate the rate of myocarditis. And I'm going to show you how they do that. So by, so the first thing you need to do is look at the inclusion exclusion criteria. And you're all going to probably say, ah, I don't even know what that means, but it's basically who they looked at in the study and who they allowed to let in. And that's the beginning place of all good analyses is what exact, who exactly are you looking at and who are you and the people that you're looking at, does that give you the sufficient information to make the conclusions that you want to do? So we're going to be looking at myocarditis and rates of infection. And if you look at this so in the healthcare system, this is the healthcare system, which is the, this, the, the square, they do a fantastic job of tracking prescriptions because you actually have to technically register a prescription in the healthcare system. So we're very confident that they're going to capture probably all the rates of vaccination because they have to be recorded in everybody's healthcare records. Um, they probably also administer a lot of molecular tests. Um, and so, uh, you know, maybe the majority of molecular tests might be recorded in the system, but we also know that a lot of tests aren't recorded in the system, specifically antigen tests would not fall into the healthcare system. Um, also symptomatic unconfirmed and asymptomatic infections would not be captured in the healthcare system. 
So these circles on the bottom here would be the true rates of infection, right? So infection is very, very widespread and it includes both things that have been recorded within the healthcare system and also all the things that have not been recorded in the healthcare system. And usually the way that you figure out rates of infection in a population is not by looking at PCR tests or things that have been recorded in your system, but looking at seroprevalence, which is randomly sampling antibodies and figuring out how many people have antibodies to the specific virus. So we know right at the outset that the number of people who've been infected is much larger than the number of people that have been vaccinated. But this study is only going to include the EHS confirmed infections. So those that were confirmed by a molecular test that's registered in their system. And the people, the vaccination, they're only going to do EHS confirmed vaccinations. So there is a possibility that there's some non-registered vaccinations, but I'm going to hazard to guess that that's very, very few but the number of infections that aren't going to be captured in the EHS system is incredibly high. So we know that at the time of this particular uh, study that 45% of people had asymptomatic infections. So by limiting the calculations for rates of myocarditis to only those that have been confirmed within the healthcare system, you immediately grossly exaggerate the rates of myocarditis in the infection group relative to the vaccination group. Does that make sense to you? That is, again, what, what, what makes sense to me is that this is just um, fraudulent. Like it, it's, it's just outright, it's data dumping. Like it, it's, it, it, it's, I, I, you, you look at that and, and after a four minute explanation from you, you go, there is no way that any credible scientist would ever do this unintentionally and without negligence, you know, um, because you've even in this category, Deanna, am I right in understanding this? You've even said non-registered antigen test, um, asymptomatic, you've got a whole ton of people who just got it were symptomatic like like the they even had symptoms but they didn't run in and get a test and and they did they, it wasn't recorded like so you're you're you've, you've even added another category here of being asymptomatic and maybe you mean by that just non-reported incidents but it that that EHS confirmed infections circle would be so much smaller yeah, than the broader group. Smaller. It's utterly mm -hmm. fraudulent. Mm -hmm. So to calculate your rates of myocarditis based on EHS confirmed infections, immediately skews the numbers completely. But you can see that it would probably give you a fairly accurate read on rates of myocarditis uh, for the vaccination group, right? Right. Because yeah. most of them are registered within the system. But by, by doing a comparable thing on this side, you actually lose the majority of the cases, right? Yes, of course. Of infection. So that's the first thing. So the number one thing you need to do if you're suspicious of a rate is to figure out what to check the denominator. What, who are they including? And in this case, you know, we're doing some work on, on pregnancy and they've categorized pregnant women as a high risk group. <laughs> 
And this, the way that they do it is they actually look at hospital data and they only include rates of infection of hospitalized women. And they miss the fact that up to 70% of young women have asymptomatic disease, right? So again, it's the same thing by by limiting the number here, then all of a sudden rates of infection in pregnant women go through the roof and they're categorized a high risk group and they're put at the front of the line for these mRNA vaccines. Right. But it's okay. The so same, is there any information the in trick. that? In, is there any information in those paragraphs uh, on the left of the screen that we need to know about this denominator conversation? Uh, I, or are you getting there? Yeah. So, this is basically color coded, right? So here it says yeah. we're going to include, right, an infection co-op. They're persons who received at least one positive SARS-CoV-2 molecular test or antigen test result that's recorded in their system, right? Because it's the healthcare okay, right. system. And then here, a first dose cohort of vaccination over here, right? Again, a second dose cohort. So this basically is just saying this is just me pulling out the text and saying, okay, who's included and who's not included. And then I made a little figure up here so that it's clear. And the green is what is not included in this study, which is the biggest group altogether, which are the symptomatic unconfirmed and the asymptomatic, right? So if you have mild COVID, you probably won't go in and get a molecular, you know, a test. You just won't. Or if you have asymptomatic disease, you won't go get a test. Oh, I'm sorry. You know what you did? You did include symptomatic, unconfirmed, and asymptomatic. I'm sorry, I I, I missed you say that so clearly earlier. You're so. Uh, yeah. Wow. Okay. Okay. So then now we've we've done our first job, which is to really skew the denominator, right? But they weren't finished with their their changes because let's go look at some other exclusions that they did. So they excluded persons who had received an mRNA COVID nineteen vaccine dose less than 30 days before a positive SARS-CoV-2 test. So in their infection group, here's the positive test that's going to qualify them for being infected, right, into this group. So 30 days prior, if they had received a vaccination, right, then they were excluded. So now we know that when you get vaccinated, right, if myocarditis, if... um, We know that when you're vaccinated, your chances of getting infected with COVID-19 within the first, you know, probably about two weeks or so before you've been fully vaccinated is high. So the the chances of them excluding a large number of people is actually quite high. So if we map that on there, they've actually now excluded another group of people. So now their denominator is even smaller, right? So let's go on next. Then they say we're going to exclude persons with a SARS-CoV-2 test result that's less than 30 days before receipt of an mRNA vaccine, right? So you have your mRNA vaccine. And if you've had a positive test, if you get infected 30 days before your vaccine, right, you're going to be excluded. But the number of people who will actually go and get vaccinated 30 days after being infected is probably quite low because the people who get who actually get infected are probably going to say, well, I've just been infected. I probably don't need my vaccine. So the number that's going to be the number that are excluded in this group are going to be low. (coughs) So if we map that on, it's going to look like this. So if you can see here, this, the, the number in the denominator here is shrinking dramatically with each exclusion, whereas the denominator here isn't changing as much. So this is the way that they've actually been able to, dramatically 
shrink their denominator so that they're with the goal of exaggerating the rates of myocarditis. Do you see what I mean? So if you were to compare the rates so now, let me just it is try to walk it. Let me just try yeah, to walk it through. So we're talking about that they're excluding individuals who were infected less than 30 days of a vaccination. So I, I thought we had an, I thought we had two groups. We had a group that was not vaccinated at all, but infected and yeah. a group that were vaccinated. Yeah. But now when you're talking about excluding persons who had received an mRNA COVID vaccine dose less than 30 days before a positive COVID V2 test result were excluded from the infection cohort. That confuses me because I thought we I thought we were studying people who had not been vaccinated at all. Well, Michael, I just want you to hold on to that thought because that's coming up as one of the next things that they did. And that's called mislabeling cohorts, right? Okay. Um, we're going to, we'll, we'll look at that in a minute, but a very, very astute observation. So let's just go on. So now they, the next thing you need to do is selectively inflate your numerator, numerator, denominator. This is the denominator at the bottom. The numerator is the top, right? So if you shrink the denominator, then you're exaggerating your rates of myocarditis in the infection group. But what if you actually selectively inflated your, your uh, numerator as well? So let's see how they did that. So the outcomes, including MIS, was only assessed in the infection cohort. So MIS is basically multi-inflammatory system. And one of the, the uh, implicate, one of the, the elements of that syndrome is to have myocarditis. So they basically said that cardiac complications are common if you have MIS. And we know that MIS is associated with a SARS-CoV-2 infection. So if we see any MIS cases, we will add them to we will call them cardiac complications and we'll add them to the rates of clinical myocarditis on the infection group, but only on the infection group. So that's what they did. So basically uh, they found that there are two times as many instances of MIS compared to myocarditis or pericarditis in those that are 12 to 17 years. So they're effectively able to double the size of the numerator on the infection group. And because they didn't actually count MIS in the vaccination group, that numerator stayed constant. Do you see how they're doing it? <laughs> like, it's, it, yeah, no, I see that. It, it's incredible because if, if you just read that out and you just said we're, we're, we're studying MIS as well, you'd have to, in, you'd have to increase both of your numerator groups. Yes. To then to then arbitrarily say, but there are rare reports of M M MIS after mRNA vaccine vaccination. So we're not going to study that. Is yeah. Okay. Okay. So you're with me? Yeah. Okay. So this is the creative labeling, right? So now we're going to call this cardiac complications over here because it's just, it's not really just myocarditis. It's it's cardiac complications. It could be MIS cardiac complications. It's just this general term cardiac complications. Um, we, we see we've got our exaggerated numerator. We've got our shrunken down denominator. But on top of that, as you mentioned previously, 
what are they doing, including vaccine, people who've received a COVID-19 vaccine, you know, greater than 30 days before in the infection group? Because actually, this group is not really an infection group. It's a previous vaccination group. It's people who've been vaccinated 30 days prior, right? Now, they don't make that clear when they're, they're writing up their titles, and they don't make that clear when they're actually writing their, their um, conclusions that, in fact, these exaggerated rates that they're reporting are actually in people who've been previously vaccinated, but more than 30 days prior. And they're comparing that to people who've been recently vaccinated less than 30 days prior. So by using these creative labels, calling the previous vaccination group an infection group, and the recent vaccination group, a vaccination group, it tends to suggest or give somebody the, the idea that it's just the rates of infection. It couldn't possibly be the prior vaccination in the infection group that's causing the myocarditis. All right. That so is unbelievable. That is unbelievable. Mm -hmm. So in All both right. cases, we are talking about a primary study of the vaccinated. So these both cohorts had vaccinations. Did did they study anybody who was unvaccinated in the infection group? They didn't. Well, they basically anybody who was vaccinated 30 days prior was excluded. So it is very possible that there were people who were never vaccinated that were included, right? Because they would they would qualify, right? But we okay. can't exclude the fact that there were people who were vaccinated in the infection group. Right. So we cannot we we cannot ascribe the outcomes of the my, the myocarditis the previous vaccination group to just people who've never been vaccinated. That would be inaccurate. Although right. that's when they report the study, that seems what it, it you you tend to immediately think that that's what it is because they've used this creative labeling. All right. So last thing is then now we're going to overgeneralize our recommendations. Okay. So this is step number five to minimizing. So if it isn't, you know, so as you can imagine, the rates of myocarditis now are, are very exaggerated in the previous vaccination group and, and now starting to look more troublesome, more troubling than in the recent vaccination group, right? For the right. very reasons that we've described in the way that they've used the statistics. So now we're going to, we're not happy with just that in, in having this exaggerated rate of infection or myocarditis in the infection group. What we're going to do is overgeneralize the recommendations. And this is something that you need to be very, very careful about because this is happening over and over and over again in, um, in the recommendations. So here, let's just look at it. It says the risk of heart complications is higher after COVID-19 infection. Well, we're not surprised by that anymore, right? <laughs> Based on their study results. Um, and then they say among males and females of all ages. So now I just want to take a moment and I want to look at what the study results. I'm not going to show any numbers, but I'm going to actually show what it was when they adjusted for population level infection rates. Right. So if they were to include this, right, the levels of infection in that group, the rates, rates of myocarditis would, and pericarditis would be very, very low. Right. If we actually looked at myocarditis up here and we looked at actual population level rates of infection, basically we know that myocarditis is very rare among people who've been unvaccinated and, and simply um, infected. Uh, 
So that's the truth of the matter. But their statement at the top is basically saying that the heart complications, note that they say heart complications, right? Yeah, uh, Are higher among males and females of all ages, right? Now, in their study, even if we were to use their outcomes, the risk of complications was high for males 12 to 29 years who had received a previous vaccination, right? Greater than 30 days. So here they're actually saying males and females, and even in their own data, the female rates were very low, right? And of course, it's not even after infection, it's after previous vaccination. So again, they're overgeneralized, they're skewing their recommendations or their conclusions based even away from their actual data. Anyways, this is a cheeky one. It says vaccine confidence can be increased if the EH results were generalized to the entire population. So by generalizing it, saying it all males and all females and, and prior infection, then it makes it seem though it's everything. But their own study, if they were looking at the previous vaccination rates, the rates were really only high in, in males. But then now they're, they're exaggerating their, their results, right? Males and females, all ages, where it was really just the young ones. And it's not even in the infection group. Their study was looking at previous vaccination. So you really, you know, even, you know, if you look through all their study results, even when they're making their own conclusions, they're departing from their own study outcomes. Uh, and then the final step, of course, is to conclude that vaccination is the answer. And what this means is you redirect towards your benefit, right? So you minimized your safety and now you're redirecting. So COVID-19 vaccination is the best way to protect against COVID-19 and rare heart complications, right? So they actually in this study didn't study protection against COVID-19. So for that to actually come into their recommendations based on this study is inappropriate and unsupported. And in fact, the CDC recently released a report, their updated guidance, where they actually admitted that COVID-19 vaccines don't stop transmission, right? They cannot prevent transmission. And if they can't prevent transmission, they can't pretend, prevent infection. Um, and therefore, they aren't protection at all against COVID-19. So they've departed from their own study results in this case. And of course, here, they're basically saying that the COVID-19 vaccination protects against rare heart complications, right? But we actually didn't study whether COVID-19 vaccination protected against rare heart complications. And in fact, we see that if you've had a previous vaccination, according to their studies, heart complications are higher than if you didn't, if you had one recently, although the study results are a little bit skewed. But the other thing too, is if you can't, if COVID-19 doesn't stop, it doesn't prevent infection, even if it were true that there were higher rates of infection associated with myocarditis, what you would do if you actually got vaccinated is you would add to the inevitable rate of myocarditis from infection because the vaccines don't stop or prevent infection. So it's actually additive, right? So even if it, it can't possibly protect you, it, it actually adds to your risk of myocarditis because now you're going to get myocarditis risk from the vaccine and natural infection if it actually were associated with natural infection. But this study actually didn't look at that. It just looked at previous vaccination. So there you go. This is how to instill vaccine confidence to minimize safety issues and increase confidence, you basically lower your denominator, you inflate your numerator, you mislabel your cohorts, you overgeneralize your recommendations, 
you make oh convincing comparison was the first one and then you conclude that vaccination is the answer so this is their formula this is actually taught in pharmaceutical training sessions on how to minimize safety issues and maximize benefits there you go wow so there's one point of clarity that i just want to uh just get you to restate so that everybody understands it. So in the, in the one group that we would now called uh, older vaccination versus recent vaccination. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Previous vaccination versus recent vaccination. I asked you if unvaccinated would qualify for that group and you answered, yes, they would. So well, we don't know. Because right. it's possible that they could, they could be in the group, but they might not be in the group. So if we think, you know, so then we'd have to say, okay, who did they, who did they pool or where did they get, where did they draw their data from? Right. So people. With, we, we know that they, they drew their data because they said it. We know that they drew their data from people who had been previously vaccinated greater than 30 days. That's what we do know. That's what we're stating. Yeah, because well, we know that anybody, them. well, they didn't say that that's, so there's, this is a little bit tricky. So an inclusion criteria means you absolutely have to have that in order to be included, right? right. So if they, if they had that as an inclusion criteria, then we would know for sure that this was the previously vaccinated group. But okay, it was so an let's exclusion. Just, just repeat that it was an ex- again. Okay. So if when they say we're including criteria, this. Yeah. If it if it were an inclusion criteria that you'd have to have you have to have been vaccinated, then I would say with all confidence that that everybody in that group had had a previous vaccine, right? But because it was exclusion, because they were just excluding anybody who had had a vaccine, then it leaves the possibility that they might have that people might not have actually had been ever vaccinated, or they could have had a vaccine greater than thirty days prior. So. I, w- I can't tell you who's in that previous vaccination group. It could be vaccinated and it could be unvaccinated. But if you were vaccinated, it would have to be more than 30 days prior. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So this is the, I'm going to call, uh, I call it um, statistical storytelling that the CDC's produced to try and minimize the safety issue of myocarditis and in order to uh, boost vaccine confidence. So I think one of the questions we had at the very beginning is, is the CDC credible and could there possibly be other interests at play or having gone through this data, do you feel that they have the patient's interest top of mind like is that are they are they working for the patient according to what we've seen today or do you think that this is there's other interests at play i i have two thoughts to answer that question so so number one of course this the 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 rhetorical question is answered no this is this is not a trustworthy study if you're doing this basic uh inflating your numerator lowering your denominator mislabeling things. The one thing though, Deanna, I wonder if you, you may not have this in the presentation and you may not have this right off the top of your head, but you, you hinted at this earlier. It would seem that maybe the study might reflect accurately 
what is going on with people who are getting vaccinated and the instances of myocarditis where mm-hmm. so so again their statements are just comparative and ridiculously mm-hmm. comparative on their face but did this actually help you understand okay the vaccines we know are having such and such a rate of myocarditis according to this study yeah. so if we throw and out if we throw out the infection group because we just know that that was just manipulation do we can we share with our listeners any information about hey this is actually what they're saying about their own products uh, regarding myocarditis yeah that's actually a good point and um what i i we could jump into this study uh but what i'd love to do is actually walk you through uh probably one of the best studies that actually assess rates of myocarditis um and in the reason i there's all sorts of different studies. So there's retrospective analysis, which is this one where they, you know, they basically have a database and everybody goes about getting their treatment. And then one day they say, Hey, I have this interesting question. And then they go back and they pull data to answer their question. And so they kind of go back and they, and they draw it out. And sometimes, you know, there's missing data and maybe they didn't get all the information that they needed. And there could be um, imbalances in the, in the information you know, between the two groups. So it, it kind of, you know, in the, in the level of, is this a, a reliable measure or not? It would be low on the reliability scale. So even if we did get a good view of what the rates of myocarditis from vaccination were in this particular group, I would hold it loosely myself because of the type of analysis it is and the, and the susceptibility to other factors that could bias the conclusions. But I would like to walk you through what I think is the study that everybody should know about um, related to uh, myocarditis. It looks like I've got my title co- uh, cut out there. But this is uh, the Nordic Cohort Study, and it's a study of the 20, 23 million residents in the four Scandinavian countries. Uh, and one of the things I, I you know, again, there's so many studies coming out. They're coming out fast and furious. And even with me, with the intention of wanting to, you know, review and analyze a lot of the studies, there's too many for me to review and analyze. So it's, it's a very tough scene, but this came out in April, 2022. And it was, again, remember that last study that I showed you came out about the same time. And um, this study uh, resulted in the Nordic countries banning vaccination for children. So they basically looked at this data from this particular study that we're going to go through, and they basically changed their uh, criterion. And I believe uh, that one of them, I think it's Denmark, or one of them actually banned, you know, stopped recommending vaccination for anybody 50 years and younger based on the results of this study, specifically related to the risks of myocarditis. So I'm going to show you, again, we're, this is a, a depiction, and it might be a little bit complicated, but I, hopefully I can walk you through it. Um, but it basically, uh, again, if you remember the last time we were thinking about it, the size of the population, or like, you know how they looked at the PCORNET database, and they said, wow, that's a really large number of people, because if you have a large number of people, then your results are more reliable. So this particular group, uh, this analysis pooled the residents of the Nordic countries, and that's about 26 million people total. So, so all, just of to, the pop, all ages are 26 million. 
And the last study, I think, if I'm remembering it correctly, was a max of eighty-one thousand. I, I think that that. Yeah, it was. It was. Um, yeah, I think there was a one million in the vaccination group and eight hundred and fifty thousand in the infection group. Oh, my sorry, so I, now, I misread that then. Yeah. So, but now we're looking at twenty-six million, and the study population. So they were able to capture their medical database captures twenty-three million. So it, they're not looking at children, ex, they exclude age, children age 12 years and younger. So this does not apply to them, right? Um, and, but you can see that the overlap, like this study medical database that they have in the Nordic countries is massive and all-encompassing. And it includes everybody in the community, except for a very small proportion, like, you know, 3 million people are missing. So that's amazing that you actually get a database that's that rigorous. So I think that that's the first thing that I would say about this study to say that this is credible, um, is that it's it's capturing what happened in a in a in a country. So then what that means is then you can look at policy decisions that were made for that country and implemented, and then you can look at the outcomes because you have a medical database that's capturing all of those outcomes, right? Okay. Yeah. And remember that we're not looking at rates of infection because rates of infection, the asymptomatic and the uh, symptomatic non-recorded would not be in a medical database, right? So we're not looking at that. So that doesn't matter. We're looking at rates of vaccination. So if we actually look at the rates of vaccination, their database includes 19 million people who were vaccinated, right? And they're going to compare it to 4 million that were unvaccinated. So the reason why that's really important is that we they're going to be doing a comparison. Remember how they were doing that tricky thing where they, they were saying the infected group and you're like, oh, the unvaccinated group, right? And we thought we were comparing unvaccinated to vaccinated. Here, they're actually going to compare people who've never received a vaccine, the unvaccinated, to a vaccinated data uh, group. So in their vaccination group, they've got 19 million and in their unvaccination group, they've got 4 million. And that's really important because you really want to have a control cohort, which is the unvaccinated, that's very large so that your comparison is robust. Right? Yep. Um, so now what they're going to do is they're going to look at inpatient myocarditis. So myocarditis is generally diagnosed within a hospital. You generally have to get hospitalized if you have myocarditis. So the number of outpatient myocarditis events is probably pretty low, but it is very possible, right? And it is also possible, they actually say in their study that their, their records, that 15% of records are missing and that the subclinical effects of un, or undiagnosed myocarditis aren't captured, right? So what we're going to be doing is we're doing we're going to be underestimating the risk of myocarditis because we're not including subclinical myocarditis and anything that was diagnosed in an outpatient setting. And there's also some medical data, medical records that probably weren't included. So when we're interpreting the study, we're going to be comparing truly unvaccinated to vaccinated. So that's good. And when we're, we're looking at myocarditis events, we're not looking at cardiac complications or anything like that. We're looking at inpatient myocarditis events, which means that it's going to be an underestimation of the true rates of myocarditis in the overall population because we're not including subclinical myocarditis and we're not including outpatient myocarditis. 
but it is a good endpoint because we know that we're going to be able to measure that accurately within the context of this study. And then the last thing is they're only going to be looking at myocarditis within the last 28 days or 28 days after vaccination. So you, whatever the time point is, they, they follow it for 28 days and then they look. So if there's any heart complications after 28 days, then we're not going to capture those. But it will give us a very good read on what's happening to people's hearts for at least a month after vaccination. Yeah. So Deanna, just to be, yeah, it does. And if I, if we were looking at at the numerator and denominator equation, it would seem that the, um, the numerator is as, I don't want to say as big as it could be, but very, very specific. And the denominator is not, um, not, uh, Sorry, the, de the denominator is not shrunk. The denominator is going to include quite a few, uh, quite a bit, and then the numerator is is quite specific and and detailed. So you you really know what you're getting, even if you might say, well, we, we would like you to look at inpatient myocarditis greater than 28 days, like you know, longer than 28 days. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I, my point is just simply, it 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 seems pretty accurate for what it's going to say it studied. Even if you yeah. wanted to have, even if you were saying, even if you felt like the numerator and denominator could be changed, it's going to be accurate to what it's saying it's it's doing. Yeah. Am and I understanding that correctly? Yeah. Most importantly, they're going to be comparing vaccinated to unvaccinated. And the, there's going to be the exact same sampling on both sides. So the, the true difference is going to be the effect of the vaccine and not something else like changing right. denominators or numerators for other reasons. Right. Do you get me? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this is why I love this study because it is going to give us very reliable insight into the rates of myocarditis the month after you get vaccinated. Now, it doesn't mean that there aren't going to be impacts beyond a month, right? It's just that this study isn't going to tell us about them. We'd have to look right. at another study to look at that. So here it is, and it's the the other thing that I think is fantastic about this is it's going to look at the rates of myocarditis. So here, so for every person, there was a time, you know, if you were somebody that got a vaccine, there was a time when you were unvaccinated. So they actually have records of what you were like before you got vaccinated in this system. Wow. Right? Yeah. And then you get vaccinated and then they have records of what happened to you 28 days after you got vaccinated. So they sample that, right? And then there's a time period and then you got vaccinated again. They're not going to know when you got vaccinated. And then they're going to have your medical records 28 days after you were vaccinated with your second dose, right? And then in the unvaccinated group, there's this, this time continuum. But what they're going to do is they're control, they're going to adjust for time, which is very uh, eloquent. So they're going to include these people in the unvaccinated group and all this in the unvaccinated group, and then they're going to adjust it for 28-day intervals. So, you know, we know that, you know, because technically speaking, these guys have gone a lot longer, right? If we're just looking at 28-day intervals, there's multiple 28-day intervals here. So they're just going to, they're, they're going to control for time sampling, which is another thing that is really exciting about this particular um, 
this particular study and, and particularly eloquent. And they're going to be calculating, um, my goodness, incident rates, incident incident rate ratio is going to be their, their, their calculation. Uh, and they basically do that. The incident rate is the number of events of myocarditis over patient uh, person years, right? So that's the adjusting for time. Um, and then there, there's going to be excess events in 28 days per 100,000. So they're going to both give us an event event rate, and then they're going to give us the number of days, the number of people, 28 days per 100,000. So you know, they're going to make it, they're going to translate it into meaningful things for us. So I'm just going to zip right to the study outcomes. And so it's a little bit complicated to look at, but here is the baseline. Everything's going to be compared to the unvaccinated, right? Because we're interested in the impact of vaccination. So whatever happened to the unvaccinated here is the baseline, right? And then they've calculated what happened after your first AstraZeneca dose, right? But then if we look here, there weren't enough events for them to calculate anything. You know, one AstraZeneca dose, a second AstraZeneca dose, this is a Pfizer dose. So you see here that your risk of, comp of myocarditis goes up twofold if you got one Pfizer dose. If you get two Pfizer doses, it goes up fivefold. And I'm just going to highlight here that I'm looking at males 16 to 24, because that's our target group. Okay. But Deanna, you just five... before you go, just before you go further, if I'm looking at the unvaccinated group, it says number of events is 149. Yeah. That means if I'm understanding the previous slide that out of that, there were 149 instances of myocarditis. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, of, hosp of hospitalized myocarditis? Inpatient in, in myocarditis, yeah. In the unvaccinated? Over the time period. In the unvaccinated, yeah. So over and the over time period of? 794 person years, right? Because they had to, ident they had to adjust for the time. Okay. Yeah. So then the numbers immediately look less in the unvaccinated. Right. Oh, sorry, because... it, sorry. They, they immediately look less in the vaccinated as I'm just walking down that oh, chart. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you have to remember that the, the, there are 28 day intervals, right? So the unvaccinated, you've got more than, you know, with the, um, they're going to take 28 days after the first dose and 28 days after the second dose. Whereas the unvaccinated over the whole course are going to have gone through multiple 28 day intervals, right? So you. Okay, so that's where the sampling, follow up thousand person years is really important. Yeah, yeah that's the adjusting for time. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. So now these are 37, so it's five times higher than if you were unvaccinated, if you got two oh. Pfizer doses. Okay. Right? Yeah. If you get one um, Moderna shot, it's two times. So you can see one Pfizer shot and one Moderna shot are about the same, right? Yeah. Two Pfizer shots is five times. Two Moderna shots is 13 times. Wow. Right. So when they say that Moderna is more, has a higher risk of myocarditis, you can see that really clearly here. So, you know, five times it's, it's more than double. 
right? The risk of myocarditis. But now this is the kicker because if you remember, they did a lot of convincing us that you can switch up your doses without any consequence, right? You can right. see here that if you get a Pfizer dose and then a Moderna dose, you have 35 times the risk of myocarditis. And then here, wow. it's the number of excess events in 28 days per 100,000 vaccinated people. So here, you, so out of every 100,000 people, in the, the 28 days following vaccination, you can expect five out of 100,000 to get myocarditis if you got two Pfizer jabs, 18 out of every 100,000 to get myocarditis, inpatient myocarditis, with two Moderna jabs. And if you get a combination, it's 27 young men in hospital for every 100,000 with the combination. And so they had promoted to us that you could that the doses were interchangeable, again, without any research or any testing whatsoever. And now after the fact, they've analyzed the hospital database in the Nordic countries, and they found that because they made that call without any evidence, without any support for it, 27 out of 100,000, you know, let's just, I don't even know what the, the math is on that, but we, thought, we said that there's 23 million people that were included in this study. And for there's 28 per every 100,000 of the young men that were vaccinated or actually were hospitalized. And they didn't pick that up until, until now, three years after the pandemic. This is the type of thing that you should have been studying before you gave these vaccines. And that's really serious. That's a 35 times increased risk compared to being unvaccinated. And it's 20 almost 27 out of every 100,000 young men who are getting heart damage because of these vaccines. And they don't even need them. That's the, that's the thing that's most egregious about this thing, is that young people are at very, very, very low risks of serious consequences due to um, infection. So, and can we, uh, we've seen... Um the multiplication of the numbers, but with that statement that you said, very, very low risk, is that represented in the middle column under crude incident rate per thousand person years of follow-up where I look at the number for the unvaccinated and it's 0.188. Mm -hmm. And then I look at the other numbers and we're getting into, uh, we're getting into 0.891, we're getting into 3.689, and we're getting into 2.584. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I, I, the only reason why I'm trying to clear this for our listeners is because my eye immediately goes to what you've highlighted, which is the unvaccinated, and it goes to 149, and I go down that column, and I go, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. But then I look at the other column and it says, well, that's 794 and that's way larger than the numbers yeah. in the column below. But then yeah. when it's interpreted in that third column in the crude incident rate per thousand, it seems that that is then now more reflective of an incident rate where I go, when you say it's very, very low, you're like, it's 0 0.188, mm -hmm. where it's the other low. ones have, have a significant increase from that. Am I reading that chart right? Yeah, uh, you know, there's 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 different adjustments to to be made. 
Um, but you're right. The crude incidence is the one that hasn't been adjusted. Um, and it's per 100,000 person years of follow-up. So they've adjusted for time, but they haven't adjusted for the ratio. But that's what the, the, the fourth column is for. Okay. Uh, yeah. But then let's just look at the bottom here. So females age 16 to 24. Now, we've really emphasized that this is an issue for, for men, right, young men. And it is an issue for young men. Um, but they've also looked at the impact of the young women. So for one Pfizer dose in the young women, lo and behold here, it's a two, two times the increase, right? So it's not the five-fold increase that you get. Well, let's see, two times here. That's almost the same for the Pfizer to the Pfizer for uh, women to men. And then for double Pfizer, it's 2.86, whereas it was 5.31. And for the combination, it's 71 times. So the combination is particularly troublesome uh, for the young women as well. Now, wow. there weren't as many. Um, so you're, when you adjust it per 100,000, there's only 3.74 out of every 100,000 young women who are, right. who are getting things. But what we want to emphasize here is this is troubling. You know, these, we don't need to be uh, increasing the risk of myocarditis of any young person. And there is a real risk of myocarditis for the young women as well as the young men. And I would hazard to say that it, the, it's probably occurring at all ages. The heart damage is probably occurring at all ages, although it's just easier to see because there's no com comorbidities masking it in the, like in the older ages, other people have other health conditions that can mask it. Um, so you might not, you might just attribute it to the other health condition and not the vaccination. Whereas in young people, there, are, there is no background of myocarditis, generally speaking. And so that's why it's more obvious, but also more troublesome. And just as they said that the vaccines didn't cause myocarditis, that they were safe at the beginning, and just as they said that uh, the combinations were, you know, that each were interchangeable and just get whatever dose you can, which they said without any testing, again, without any testing, they're now declaring that uh, the symptoms that this type of vaccine-induced myocarditis is mild and transient, and that doesn't have any long-term consequences to it. But again, they're saying this, they're declaring it rather than actually saying it because they've tested it and they've seen what happens to kids 10, 15 years out under all sorts of different conditions, stress conditions, right? What's gonna happen to these young women who have damaged hearts when they go into childbirth, you know, or when they get pregnant and their hormones change, you know, is that going to impact anything? You know, is labor going to impact them? You know, I saw an article of a young woman, uh, you know, it was called my birthing stories. And, you know, she was like, I was having my baby and I had a heart attack while I was having my baby. How unusual is that? This is my story. And she's saying it as if she's, you know, in a sense, it's the way of normalizing, you know, uh, heart attacks <laughs> during childbirth, which is ridiculous. But are we setting up our young women to be at risk of a heart attack or cardiac arrest, right? And again, going back to our original um, study, these are inpatient myocardial events. These don't include, and, and for 28 days, so there's studies now that are, are going out 90 days and showing that there's permanent changes to the heart 90 days out, right? It's not quite pumping correctly. 
Um, there's studies that are showing subclinical damage. The troponin levels are different and there's morphological changes that aren't showing up as clinical manifestations, but they're changing. There's studies in Taiwan and Japan on those things. So the, 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 there's data coming out that says that there's subclinical myocarditis and there's long lasting effects, right? And then we're starting to hear these stories, anecdotal stories of, you know, young athletes falling dead, young doctors falling dead, young women having heart attacks, you know, while they're delivering their children. This isn't normal. No, I have, I have, I have a few thoughts to follow up with that, Deanna. My first thought is thank you so much for presenting this. Just to remind everybody, this study that that um, you just shared um, was the how many the 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 four Nordic countries, right? Residents in Sweden, Denmark, yeah. Finland, and Norway. Yeah, there's that. So, it's jam published in JAMA Cardiology. Okay. And then I just, I want to read that. So, so this is what led those countries to ban vaccinations uh, in young people. So here's countries limiting the use of MRNA vaccinations in children and young adults following the public publication of that Nordic cohort trial. So there you have, uh, is that, are those the only countries, but, but those are countries that have responded, right? Yeah, so I can't say that it was directly related to the Nordic cohort trial, although the changes in policy followed fairly quickly on the heels of the Nordic cohort trial for the Nordic countries, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, and Finland. Uh, The changes, uh, there was other publications that came out uh, in England, and and then they changed their policy accordingly. I'm I'm digging into those studies. And then there was, uh, then Australia just changed their policy, which is kind of strange because they seem to be off the mark on many other things, but they seem to get that one right. So again, these countries are taking what you call a risk mitigated approach. Risk mitigated, big word, what it really means is that you say there is a real risk of myocarditis with vaccination, right? And then you basically would only give the vaccine to people who really needed it. So high risk people. Then for those high risk people, the benefits of getting vaccinated might outweigh the risks of myocarditis. But what it really means is for anybody who has a healthy child with a healthy immune system, the the risk of myocarditis does the benefits of, of preventing a COVID-19 infection, if there are any, do not uh, outweigh the risks of the myocarditis associated to the vaccine. And that's what these countries are saying. They're saying that the risks outweigh the benefits for young, healthy children. And therefore, we're not recommending it in that group anymore. So Deanna, I want to, the second thing I wanted to talk about as response to this is I want to, I want that slide to stay up. Okay, put that slide back up. And I want to read it in comparison with the province of Ontario and in Canada. So I am on the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario right now. And I am reading for you um, a statement um, from the a Q&A page on their page. And it says this, this is a question. Patients are asking me to write notes supporting a medical exemption from COVID-19 vaccinations. What do I need to know? It goes on to say, uh, paragraph three, generally speaking, there are very few acceptable medical exemptions to the COVID-19 vaccination. And uh, 
that paragraph goes on to explain a, a few of them, uh, severe allergy or anaphylactic reaction, those types of things. Given the rarity of these exceptions, and in light of the fact that the vaccines have been proven to be both safe and effective, any notes written for patients who qualify for medic medical exemptions need to clarify. And then it goes on to what they need to clarify. And again, remember, uh, medical exemption used to mean I don't want to get it because I'm informed and or because I'm what for whatever reason, I don't want to get it. But now listen to this. This is the paragraph I mentioned yesterday to everybody. And this is utterly terrifying. And it is from our College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario to help doctors navigate what they should do with uh, Deanna McLeod. And this is what it says. It says, it is also important that physicians work with their patients to manage anxieties related to the COVID, uh, sorry, to the vaccine. By the way, it says the vaccine. It's not, I guess it's, this is on a COVID-19 Q&A page. So the vaccine and not able and not enable avoidance behavior. So it is important for them to work with their uh, patients to manage anxieties and not enable avoidance behavior. So they give one example, for example, the, the extreme fear of needles. Uh, and then they go on or other cases of serious concern. So what's a serious concern? Oh, it might've been the fact that I walked with Deanna McLeod through, uh, uh, through uh, the study uh, coming out of the four Nordic countries. That, that, that gives me serious concern. Okay. Listen to this. Responsible use of prescription medications and or referral to psychotherapy. So I yesterday I said psychotropic medicine and uh, to, to kind of be exactly accurate, the wording is prescription medication. Uh, medication. Um, so they say responsible use of pres prescription medications and or referral to psychotherapy may be available options. Overall, physicians have a responsibility to allow their patients to be properly informed about vaccines. Listen to this. This is how they turn it on its head and not have those anxieties empowered by an exemption. So you go in and ask for an exemption and they're supposed to properly inform you about the vaccines to the point that you don't want your exemption anymore. So basically they're making the doctor in the position of, in, in, of actively interfering with your informed consent Yeah. to the point of calling it an illness and potentially saying that it needs to be treated. So not that I ever want this to ever happen, but again, folks, it is people like Deanna doing careful work that this is talking about P people like you listening to this podcast, people like the parent who sent that one study to Deanna and said, Hey, can you analyze this? It's people like that, that in Ontario, the college is saying medicate them or put them into therapy. Now there might be some other type of people out there that uh, may be further outliers. And uh, they might be saying that of them as well, but they are certainly including for, you know, I, I can't even think of going to my family doctor and having my family doctor say, Mike, I, I need you to take, I need you to go to therapy over this. And I go, wait, well, look, look, look at the, look at the, uh, look at the, the numbers. 
And he goes, no, I'm not going to look at the numbers, but you need therapy. Like that's the difference between the province of Ontario and the nation of Canada right now, the state of Canada and these other countries that have done the exact opposite. They've done research and said, no, we're, we're not going any further with this. We're limiting vaccines in children and young adults, which by the way, uh, I also, this is the third point, Deanna, I wanted to just draw to conclusion. We are only studying children and young adults because they're the youngest and healthiest and strongest. So it would be fair, would it not, Deanna, to be able to extrapolate this information to some degree to say that if young people are having these effects, we should study more to see what older people are having like, like, do you know what I mean? Like, we're studying young people to protect, uh, to protect this strong population. But this, these studies that would infer that you know this is happening in young people, you would be able to then extrapolate from that and go, well, if a forty-year-old, forty-year-old men and 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 thirty-year-old men, or or forty-year-old women and 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 fifty-year-old women might have similar problems with the vaccine, so we should study that. A- am I right in? in making that uh, leap of logic? Well, I think it goes back to, uh, it underscores the reason why good medical practice is that you study safety first before you give it to people, right? So we we violated that principle with the COVID-19 vaccine rollout. We didn't study it carefully and we rolled it out to everybody um, you know, even I, I work in this area for a long time and there is no medication that's good for everybody, you know, and it would have to be the safest drug on earth, uh, having been studied for 30 years in order to, to be able to say with, to prove safety, to say with all confidence that it's not going to hurt anybody. Right. So already the college is out of bounds there. And so what this would say to me, you know, if I saw this type of thing, I would say, oh my gosh. I totally miscued on this. I should have never recommended these vaccines to anyone based on the fact that they're a train wreck in terms of safety, right? Stop them right now. We're going to test these things and make sure that we know how to administer them safely to everybody. Uh, We're going to study, you know, take a risk medicated approach and find out who's having trouble and who's not having trouble and make sure to personalize their use should we move forward with this in the future. That's what should be happening right now. So you're absolutely right in that they should stop the use of these vaccines and start studying them more carefully and figure out who is who's having, you know, why we're having the pr- trouble that we're having and, and who's actually getting hurt and who isn't, who isn't being injured. For sure, we shouldn't be giving it to our children because uh, the rule, the medical principle there is called the precautionary principle, which is you... You never do anything. You always err on the the side of safety in terms of administration of an agent because they have what you call a large number of quality life years ahead of them. Those children are going to be alive for a long time, let's just say 70 years to be conservative, and they're in good health now. So we want to perpetuate that good health state as long as possible. Um, And so if you injure a child at an early stage, if you give them myocarditis now, they're going to suffer from myocarditis for the rest of their life. Now, for people who care about kids, that's really concerning because I want to preserve those quality health, health, healthy quality years for as long as possible. But if you are a pharmaceutical industry or pharmaceutical company, 
like Pfizer, and you could front end it and back end it, right? In the sense that, you know, you could give a drug that caused myocarditis, and then you could give another drug that could treat myocarditis, or, you know, that you had a whole array of um, medications that could be that could treat cardiovascular disease that could come from this, then you might not be too concerned uh, with high rates of myocarditis in this study, that actually could be just a way of uh, improving your bottom line in the next five to 10 years. So I think that this comes back to the perspective that we're thinking about, you know, whose, whose perspective is being, you know, who are we working for uh, with these COVID-19 vaccines? You know, is it a financial, are there financial parties that are driving these recommendations um, that are, are looking to sweeten their bottom line? Are they looking to protect children and exercise the precautionary principle? Why are our colleges and our regulators and our politicians so enthusiastic for these vaccines? So I think these are the, this is the line of questioning that you have to be asking when you see that people are willing to risk the health of young children uh, it has to be some sort of other motivation that would be uh, causing that to happen. Uh, you know, and that's why, as I mentioned earlier, you know, our firm is is doing what we call heat mapping. And heat mapping is where you go and you look at a recommendation and you see who the key decision makers were and what types of conflicts of interest that they have. And those interests can be, you know, somebody can say, you know, say, for instance, somebody's whole life has been dedicated to mRNA technology. And finally, this is the big breakthrough. Um, you know, they're not going to be very welcoming of mRNA technology causing myocarditis. So they might be somebody who's writing studies to basically minimize the risks of, of, of the technology. If you're a pharmaceutical company and you've invested tons of money and you've made promises to your shareholders that you're going to get some sort of outcome you know, in Q2, then you might be motivated to, to sweeten, you know, minimize the safety issue. You know, if you're a politician, um, and your, your, you know, your global community is very enthusiastic about vaccines, and you want to have a position, you know, on the world stage, you might be inclined to promote them, even if there's side effects and minimize those safety issues. So, you know, you have to think about all the people who are playing a role in this and what other motivations could they have. Now, I know that we all want to trust our health officials and our institutions. Uh, and for the most part, I think at least in my lifetime, that's been warranted in many instances. Um, but I think that there are multiple other influences at play right now uh, in, in this technology. Uh, one of the things that our firm noted recently is that uh, the Biden administration passed an executive order uh, that basically makes uh, that basically is promoting the bioeconomy uh, in the saying that that's going to be a number one priority for the U.S. and basically arranged it so that every arm of the government is now pushing uh, this bioeconomy. And when you look at the small print of what that actually means, it means that they want to genetically modify every aspect of our life, right? Um, you know, including our food, you know, livestock, and and even know how to reprogram cells themselves. So, you know, it could be that some of the other influences at play right now are 
uh, a global bioeconomy machine that is looking to uh, profit off of um, genetic engineering of every aspect of our life. So for profit, right? So moving from the natural to the engineered. And, you know, one thing that everybody needs to be aware of is that in the States, you can patent anything that's bioengineered, but you can't patent anything that's natural. So that means that things that are natural will have no profit line to them, but anything that is bioengineered, you can make profit off of. So what that does is it puts a huge economic engine on altering the natural for profit. Uh, and I don't think that that's, uh, you know, being missed by many of our large global biopharmaceutical companies. Uh, and so I think that it's probably wise to keep an eye out for those types of influences as well. Well, Deanna, if you had told me that we were going to be able to fill three hours of conversation, uh, I I may have said, "Come on, let, we'll we'll get to two hours and fifteen minutes." But we are now at a, a another hour and thirty six minutes of dialogue on this issue, and wow. I want to thank you so much for taking your the the time and the research that you're doing. We look forward to any other research that you want to share out. You know, these conversations are very helpful. Uh, for all of us. So thank you for all of your diligent work. And uh, folks, you have, you have now uh, ammunition, you have a, a loaded gun, you have um, uh, substance, you have meat to give uh, to the medical professions around you, uh, the medical professionals around you. And if they've had their head in the sand and they just don't want to look at things, um, these are two great videos now to share. And uh, as, as Deanna mentioned, we're going to have her back on about that uh, heat mapping conversation. Um, we just heard this week that uh, we're going to be having uh, Dr. Robert Malone on later on. And so everybody keep listening. We've got these really important interviews uh, to share with you about what, what's going on. And, and this affects, you know, uh, Deanna, I, I'm not sure if, if you realize this, but in your last little kind of exhortation there to all of us, you know, uh, Proverbs, I mean, Ecclesiastes 5, 8, and 9 talks about uh, one official letting injustice happen around him because he looks for a higher official and he looks for a higher official. And so this whole, when, when you say people can be moted by global politics, by uh, uh global political affairs. Of course, that is the case. Uh, people looking for high, you know, we, we see all throughout scripture that, you know, people can be bribed. Uh, people can bear false witness because of, 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 of a, a gain in finances. Uh, we're, we're warned about greed. And so there's nothing new under the sun. We're, we're really dealing with individuals and that's where these, these old medical safeguards were put in place in order to keep all of us in check in, in order mm -hmm. to, to reveal true information because no one is really neutral and we, we all have to be held to account and cross-examined. So, you know, really some of the, some of the very detailed information that you're sharing also just reveals to us just how 
uh, how easily people can you know fall back into those manipulative behaviors and without these safeguards folks and without the ability to have second opinions and informed medical consent we're we're really at the whim of whoever is uh producing the most pervasive per- pervasive propaganda which is a, another form of lying so Deanna, i'm i'm deeply indebted to you for coming on i'm so glad we connected over this and i look forward to hearing further research in the future all right well thanks very much michael for uh the conversation and the time and i hope that uh this will be helpful for your audience so take care and have a great day Wonderful. Okay, everybody, share this around. Give us a five-star rating uh, and Godspeed to you as you go out.